Welcome to a new history of old San Antonio. Episode 22, San Antonio is stuck in the past. I'm Brandon Seal. I'm a city, San Antonio. Tonight I'm looking at your lovely life. San Antonio is falling behind. Incomes are growing, and yet per capita wealth is only a fraction of other similar-sized American cities. San Antonio boasts some of the oldest public schools in the state, if not the continent, and yet enrollment flounders and literacy lags. While other cities like New Orleans and San Francisco have been able to carefully package their history while cultivating a distinctly modern and global image, San Antonians remain a, quote, ragged band of men of all colors, end quote, proud, it seems, of their own provincialism. Sure, people keep moving here, but for how much longer, when neighboring cities like Austin and Houston seem to have so much more to offer to the kind of people that think seriously about these things? The Express News said it best, quote, only the snort of the iron horse can save us from barbarism, end quote. And so on February 16th, 1877, 8,000 San Antonians, half the town, turned out to celebrate the arrival of the railroad with a party that lasted for two days straight. Even Spurs championship parades today don't turn out such a high proportion of the population. Though to be fair, Spurs championships occur with much greater frequency than does the arrival of an entirely new mode of transportation. Quote, with her railroad in operation, San Antonio can now take a position in the great family of first-class cities of the American continent and move grandly on to that greatness and prosperity that could never have been reached without the aid of the Iron Horse, end quote, the Express News proclaimed. San Antonio was the largest city in Texas in 1877, a remarkable fact, really, when you consider its isolation. Yet it was also the last major city in the United States to be connected to the nation's growing rail network. When the locomotive for the Galveston, Harrisburg, and San Antonio Railroad finally pulled into San Antonio, City leaders felt once and for all that they had finally joined, well, civilization. The railroad immediately made heavy industry possible in San Antonio. It brought in the furniture that John Campman ran through his furniture factory and that Edward Steves milled into doors. It brought the steel slabs that Alamo Ironworks, founded in 1876, would roll into the beams that framed out San Antonio's first multi-story buildings. It brought the latest machinery and technology for the Alamo Cement Company, launched in 1880, to exploit the same limestone formations that San Antonio's first missionaries had quarried to build the UNESCO World Heritage Missions. The railroad gave San Antonians access to new markets for their goods, too, such as the beer coming off of its dozen or so breweries, including the Lone Star and Pearl Breweries. And it cut 1,000 miles off the journey for San Antonio's stock raisers, who could now put their animals on a rail car in San Antonio instead of having to drive them up the Great Plains. The cattle business that had sustained early San Antonio, and indeed forged much of her identity, immediately boomed, as San Antonio now became the destination rather than just a way station for livestock. And yet San Antonio's cultural footprint by 1877 was already much larger than even the railroads. Cowboys running cattle in the Texas Panhandle, or in Wyoming, or even all the way up into Canada probably didn't know that they were employing stock-raising techniques developed by early San Antonio friars, native converts, and vecinos. They probably didn't realize where their low-crowned, wide-brimmed hats, tooled, high-shanked leather boots, all-purpose lariats, and brush-popping chaps came from. And they probably didn't appreciate the etymological roots of their cowboy vocabulary, even as they talked with the same pride that 18th century San Antonians did of their ranches, mustangs, and rodeos. And yet by the 1880s, they called their unbranded cattle Mavericks, after San Antonian Samuel Mavericks rather disorganized cattle management across the 300,000 acres he held by his death in 1870. They tacked their horses with gear from L. Frank Saddlery, founded in San Antonio that same year. They wore boots made in San Antonio by Salvatore Lucchese and others. And in 1876, they came to Alamo Plaza to see Pete McManus and John Betamillion Gates demonstrate a new invention that was, quote, light as air, stronger than whiskey, and cheap as dirt, end quote. 
To the skeptical eye of the San Antonians gathered around them, McManus and Gates pinned in a herd of notoriously fierce and famously wild Texas Longhorns, descended from those wild cattle left behind by Spaniards 200 years before. When their so-called barbed wire held in the angry and confused animals to the satisfaction of a community that had spent 150 years running them wild on the plains, McManus and Gates knew that they had nothing left to prove. San Antonio's cattle culture spun off entirely new businesses as well. Wenzel Friedrich found ways to upscale the Longhorns' long horns into luxury furniture that soon adorned the finest royal houses of Europe. His son, Albert, inherited his father's fascination with bighorns, and in 1881, he opened his collection to the public in a bar on Houston Street that would become the Buckhorn Saloon, which still serves bankers, cowboys, and passers-through to this day. His cousin, Ed Friedrich, would develop a perhaps even more effective means of cooling off after a day on the trail. In 1883, Friedrich Air Conditioning was founded. In 1881, the Second Railroad, the International and Great Northern Railroad, arrived, by which time San Antonio's population had already increased 50% from just four years before when the first railroad arrived, to over 30,000 people. Three more railroads would arrive in the years to follow, and San Antonio eventually found itself at the hub of several continental rail and road systems connecting the Atlantic to the Pacific and the Arctic to the Gulf. In 1889, Union Stockyards was founded at the point where all of these roads met. The wealth generated from livestock soon spun off the San Antonio banking industry. Samuel Maverick Jr. founded Maverick National Bank in 1884, and the next year constructed for it the tallest building west of the Mississippi River. Daniel and Anton Oppenheimer had first come to San Antonio after the Civil War to sell general goods to stock raisers, then got into ranching themselves, and eventually founded DNA Oppenheimer Bank. And a wool merchant named Colonel T.C. Frost, who had been buying, trading, and lending wool at his store on Main Plaza since 1868, would eventually charter Frost National Bank at the same location. Others came into banking from San Antonio's role as a center of international trade. Our old friend, the Irish breadline banker John Tuig, you will recall, first opened his general store on Main Plaza in 1830. By 1869, he was engaged almost exclusively in banking, with correspondent banks in New Orleans, New York, St. Louis, San Francisco, and London. By the time this little Irishman, who had tunneled his way out of a Mexican prison, disguised himself as a peddler, and walked to Veracruz where he took passage back to Texas, died in 1891, he was one of the wealthiest men in the state. Friedrich Gross had first come to San Antonio in 1850, when he went to work for early Irish immigrant mayor Brian Callahan and the French-born savior of the European wine industry, Francois Guilbeault. Gross spun off his own merchandising and freight company in 1854, eventually opening offices in San Antonio, Eagle Pass, and Monterey, where he rode out the Civil War. In 1874, F. Gross and Company transitioned from mercantile to banking operations. Additionally, Gross went on to serve as president of the German English School and president of the first municipal gas company in San Antonio when it was founded in 1879. In the post-Civil War years had also seen George Brackenridge, that old unionist cotton smuggler, lay the foundations of his commercial empire. Returning to San Antonio in 1866, he chartered San Antonio's first national bank, appropriately called the First National Bank. In 1883, he reorganized and took control of the San Antonio Waterworks Company, a sort of public-private partnership which began to supply San Antonians with groundwater from the Edwards Aquifer, and not from her old Asakias. His estate became the University of the Incarnate Word, and, of course, also yielded the city Brackenridge Park, a truly phenomenal 343-acre space in the middle of the city that still has the potential to become the world-class park that Brackenridge envisioned. In 1881, lights began to go on throughout the city, as the San Antonio Electric Company was chartered and steam power began to replace the increasingly abandoned water mills. That same year, the San Antonio Telephone Exchange opened, later of course becoming known as Southwestern Telegraph and Telephone Company, and later still as Southwestern Bell. 
The civic push behind these utility companies' formations also manifested itself in a renewed focus on public safety and health codes. In the name of public health, in 1889, the famed chili queens and street vendors were relocated from Military Plaza to Market Square to the west. Shootouts and gunfights were still tragically common, particularly at the northwest corner of Main Plaza, which coincidentally was where Santa Ana had made his headquarters during the Battle of the Alamo, at a spot that became known as the Fatal Corner. But after a particularly bloody and well-publicized shootout in 1884, the San Antonio Police Department was truly funded and expanded. In 1891, the Municipal San Antonio Fire Department took over from the volunteer fire brigades originally organized by Longhorn furniture maker Wenzel Friedrich. The last of San Antonio's acequia systems, the Alasan Ditch, was actually constructed as late as 1876. Yet the Alasan system was only in service a few years, as following the cholera outbreak of 1866, the link between these recurring epidemics and San Antonio's historic acequias was firmly established. By 1890, most of the old acequias, now so unimaginatively called ditches, were paved over, albeit initially with the more readily available mesquite blocks rather than asphalt. Mission Concepcion's acequia became Roosevelt Street. The Alamo acequia became River Avenue, or Broadway. The San Pedro, or Main acequia, became Acequia Street, and later Main Street. The road which paralleled the San Pedro acequia for most of its path up the San Pedro Springs became known as Calle de las Flores, or Flores Street, because of its perennially blooming flowers growing along the acequia's banks. Another road following San Pedro Creek's trajectory to the north of town became, predictably, San Pedro Avenue. Presidio and Alameda Streets were aspirationally renamed Commerce Street, as agricultural San Antonio yielded to the new industrial age. Old San Fernando Church now looked across the Plaza de Islas, by then renamed Main Plaza, at the new Bear County Courthouse, completed in 1882 and designed by that most famous architect of Texas courthouses, San Antonian James Riley Gordon. The even older Spanish Governor's Palace watched passively as, in 1889, the cornerstone for the new city hall was laid in the center of the Plaza de Armas, by then renamed Military Plaza. Not surprisingly, the military remained a constant and important presence in Military City, USA. With its railroad connection secured, San Antonians were able to lure the U.S. Army back from its flirtations with Austin by the gift of a 93-acre tract of land just northeast of the city. Renamed Fort Sam Houston in 1890, in 1910, an entirely new branch of warfare would be born there, military aviation. It was fitting somehow that the city that had introduced highly mobile mounted warfare to North America should birth military aviation, just as it was fitting that the town that had been the most contested point on the continent for a century and a half would later house the U.S. Department of Defense's largest single installation, Joint Base San Antonio. And given this history, it's no accident that Teddy Roosevelt, a student of history himself, chose San Antonio from which to recruit his famed Rough Riders Regiment in 1898. Setting up camp in Alamo Plaza, he knew that he was amongst the hardest men on the continent, the product of an almost 200-year history of mounted frontier warfare. And yet both those old San Antonians and their enemies were slowly riding into the sunset. September 28, 1874, saw the final defeat of the Comanche Empire at the Battle of Palo Duro. On June 21, 1876, an 82-year-old man with a wooden leg, cataracts, and 11 Mexican presidential sashes in his closet died in Mexico City. Having overseen the loss of half of his nation's territory, Santa Ana spent most of the final 20 years of his life in exile in Cuba and New York City. Most of his great Tejano opponents, however, passed into the next life to substantial acclaim. Captain Antonio Menchaca of the old Presidio line dating back to José de Urrutia and Diego Ramón died in 1879, an outspoken advocate for Tejano's contributions to Texas's independence. Francisco Antonio Ruiz, mayor of San Antonio during the Battle of the Alamo and son of José Francisco Ruiz, who signed the Texas Declaration of Independence, eventually reconciled to Texas's annexation to the United States 
and returned from his self-imposed exile amongst the Plains Indians to die in San Antonio in 1876. Agustin de Zavala, son of Mexican Federalist and first Texas Vice President Lorenzo de Zavala, returned to San Antonio in 1873 and helped settle the northwest part of the town where a street bearing his name now runs. Leonardo Garza, the son of José Antonio Garza, who had first placed a single lone star on the state's first coinage, went off to Williams College and eventually came back to become one of the wealthiest men in the city. The sons of José Antonio Navarro did similarly well, one going off to Harvard before returning to serve multiple terms as a state legislator. When José Antonio Navarro himself died in 1871, the funeral procession was perhaps the largest the city had ever seen. He had participated in every meaningful moment of political change during the city's last 60 years, witnessed five different changes of the flag over San Antonio, and helped draft a half-dozen different constitutions for his state. And though his fellow revolutionary Juan Seguin had left San Antonio for good in 1870, by the time he died in 1890, even his reputation had been rehabilitated, and his contributions to his city and his state honored. The changes in the religious life of the city told the story as well. The first English-language church didn't open until St. Mary's in 1857. In 1866, St. Michael's opened its doors to serve the Polish community, and ten years later, St. Joseph's opened for the Germans. Joski's department store, founded in 1867, moved next door to St. Joseph's 20 years later, and would eventually grow to become the largest department store west of the Mississippi River, surrounding St. Joseph's on three sides and leading locals to rechristen the church St. Joski's. By the 1880s, the first great Protestant churches were going up as well, including St. Mark's Episcopal Church in 1877 and Travis Park Methodist Church in 1886. Yet the spiritual heart of the city remained San Fernando Church, whose dome still serves as the point from which all distances in San Antonio are measured. In 1874, it was elevated to the dignity of a cathedral and made the seat of the new diocese of San Antonio. Between 1868 and 1873, it was renovated, significantly expanding its nave and adding its second bell tower, with the construction overseen by Francois Giraud, a Frenchman who had already constructed St. Mary's Cathedral and whose brother was actually the one constructing St. Joseph's Cathedral nearby. German remained widely spoken in San Antonio well into the 20th century. The German language Freie Presse für Texas, also incidentally published by the Express News' James Newcomb, would remain in daily circulation as the leading German language news outlet until 1918 and in weekly circulation until 1945. Yet 1877 would mark the year that English finally took over as the most commonly spoken language in the city, though English speakers wouldn't become the majority until sometime in the 1880s. San Antonio, even after the railroad, remained a defiantly mixed town. As one visitor in 1877 wrote, quote, I have never seen a population so mixed. Of the 20,000 population, they assigned one-third to the Americans, one-third to the Germans and Slavs, and one-third to the Mexicans and French, end quote, not to mention sizable African-American, Polish, Italian, and even Chinese communities. Each settled in their own neighborhoods, with their own schools and places of worship, establishing socioeconomic patterns that continue in San Antonio to this day. Even in 1877, San Antonio could simultaneously give the impression of being a town of extreme diversity, but also of market segregation. And yet a large reason for this statistical segregation was that the many communities making up San Antonio never balkanized into separate municipalities. San Antonio remained, in truth, many San Antonios, a collection of several largely independent communities united as much by a shared way of life as by their civic government. This stands in marked contrast to most other American cities, particularly in the 20th century, whose different communities often splintered into competing municipalities and suburbs. It's the reason why today San Antonio is technically the seventh largest city in the United States, while being perhaps only the 25th largest metropolitan area. In a way, the man elected mayor of San Antonio in 1885 embodied this diversity in this history perfectly. 
Brian Callahan Jr. spoke fluent English, Spanish, French, and German, and had ties to almost every ethnic group in the city. Callahan Jr. was, of course, the son of the first Brian Callahan, who had come to San Antonio during the years of the Texas Republic and risen to become a quite successful merchant and eventually mayor of the town. His mother was Concepcion Ramon, a Canary Islander and direct descendant of that great Presidio commander, Captain Diego Ramon, whose chicken war might very well have been the catalyzing force that settled San Antonio 160-some-odd years before. Brian Callahan Jr. married the daughter of his father's partner in business, Frenchman and savior of the European wine industry, Francois Guilbeault. And his daughter would marry Leonardo Garza, the increasingly prominent local banker and son of José Antonio Garza. Callahan didn't line up cleanly with the old Democratic Party or with the rising corporate faction, carving out a sort of populist middle path that both calls to mind the coming machine politics in other American cities, yet retained a distinctly San Antonio flavor. It's unclear if anyone other than Callahan and the curious coalition that he built could have mobilized the stingy and frankly still poor frontier town to invest in the infrastructure that it did under his tenure. Brian Callahan Jr. would be elected mayor nine different times before his death in 1912, the first Tejano mayor since Juan Seguin, and the last until Henry Cisneros. And yet the machine he built took some years to later unwind, and the process that his administration achieved came at a cost. To be fair, it was a cost that many in the city were willing to pay. For these people, the arrival of the railroad didn't do enough to propel San Antonio into the future. For many, San Antonio's disorderly plazas and crumbling missions were a reminder of a backward past that they would just as well forget. The 1873 map that serves as the cover art for this episode conspicuously excludes the four southern, non-Alamo missions, which were most commonly used in the 1870s as a site to collect free building materials. In 1874, Mission San Jose's magnificent dome collapsed, the victim of a half-century of neglect. Other historic buildings began to disappear entirely. The old La Quinta building, south of the plaza, where San Antonio's women had been imprisoned and forced to make tortillas while their men were executed outside by Spanish royalists, gave way to Dwyer Avenue. The Council House, where Texians and Comanches had reopened a generation of warfare, was abandoned and later razed. The De La Garza compound, where the Lone Star first entered circulation in Texas, gave way to Houston Street's development as the principal commercial thoroughfare of the city. And the Veramendi Palace, where Juan Veramendi had been born, where Jim Bowie had lived, and where Ben Milam had died, and where the first shots of the American Civil War were temporarily avoided, made it into the first decade of the 20th century, but no further. Yet while many remained embarrassed by San Antonio's, quote, odd and antiquated foreignness, end quote, some began to realize that San Antonio's history made it unique among American cities. American culture has always enjoyed taking on and playing up its regional differences by appropriating token symbols of non-American culture. Yet San Antonio wasn't just an American town with a Spanish name. It was a collection of communities with 200 years of continuous, uninterrupted history, the ultimate frontier town with its own mythology, whose culture, by contrast, appropriated newcomers as much as they appropriated it. A burgeoning awareness of this uniqueness incited a conservation movement in San Antonio, provoked by the 1879 abandonment of the Alamo by the U.S. Army when they decamped for Fort Sam Houston. The fate of the Alamo, the most sacred symbol of the town itself, was suddenly unclear. The Alamo Monument Association was formed and elected as its first president, Mary Maverick, wife of Samuel Maverick, a frontierswoman who had lived the town's growth over the previous 40 years. In 1883, the Alamo Monument Association finally convinced the state to buy the Alamo, the first purchase west of the Mississippi River of a building for historic conservation purposes. And soon after, they began restoration of Mission San Jose's church, bringing renewed attention to the San Antonio missions that had done so much to seed the town's early settlement. Adina de Zavala, the granddaughter of the foremost theorist of Texan liberty, Lorenzo de Zavala, soon took up the fight as well. De Zavala was a firebrand, at one point locking herself in the Alamo long barracks to prevent their sale, and she was also one of the most vocal champions of San Antonio's pre-Alamo past. 
She authored one of the first histories of this pre-Alamo period, and she showed San Antonians how the sons and daughters of old Native Americans, Spanish missionaries, and homegrown vecinos still gave the city its character. How the uncanny ideological similarity between the Tejanos, who in the 1820s celebrated their fallen from the Battle of Medina as, quote, imitators of Leonidas, end quote, and the Texians of 1835, who dared a Mexican centralist army in Leonidas's words to, quote, come and take it, end quote, found common ideological cause and a common fate in their own Thermopylae behind the walls of the Alamo, and how the legacy of these first fearless frontiersmen had now given the state that owed them so much its very identity. Adina de Zavala would go on to found the Texas Historical and Landmarks Association, 16,000 of whose descriptive plaques now decorate Texas roads. She was a charter member of the Texas State Historical Association as well, whose handbook of Texas Online I've used here more than any other single reference for this project. In 1891, De Zavala and other women's groups formed the organization that would throw the first Battle of Flowers Parade in San Antonio, the city's annual week-long celebration where the city shuts down, well, frankly, just to celebrate itself and its many different communities. And these women's groups would give birth to the San Antonio Conservation Society in 1924, which would be instrumental in the planning and development of the Riverwalk, a project that now seems two generations ahead of its time in the way that it features the city's natural environment rather than trying to hide it. It's wonderfully poetic in my mind, that a city whose water had always driven its development should be known the world over for its riverwalk. With time, and with proponents like Adina de Zavala giving San Antonio's history its proper context, San Antonians came to appreciate what had been in front of their noses all along. As a guidebook from the time put it, quote, San Antonio is not well-ordered, not entirely beautiful, not wholly anything. It is, and always has been, a meeting place, on the verge, between France and Spain, between Spain and England, between the Indian and the white, between the South and the West, the Old and the New, end quote. It was the very way that San Antonio's different cultural strains refused to yield to each other, the way the community's past so insistently protruded onto its present that gave the city its charm. And it was the place to which the entire state instinctively turned for its birth narrative and for its identity. The Alamo, of course, was the cradle of Texas liberty. And as the great Texas folklorist J. Frank Doby said, quote, every Texan has two hometowns, his own and San Antonio, end quote. By 1884, old Texas rangers like Rip Ford were choosing to retire in San Antonio to be near others who had ridden the range in that older, disappearing age. Rip Ford set himself the task of capturing the stories of earlier San Antonians, like firsthand Alamo accounts by Juana Navarro, Enrique Esparza, and Francisco Antonio Ruiz, vital accounts that, like De Zavala's work, helped San Antonians root their present in their past. That same year, San Antonio hosted the first meeting of the old Trail Drivers Association a recognition that the heyday of the Texas cowboy had, in some way, already passed. The great cattle drives from South Texas to northern markets had, in truth, only lasted a couple of decades, yet they left an impression on the psyche of the entire nation, who saw in the San Antonio cowboy the perfect expression of American self-reliance and personal liberty. Yet it wasn't just the Anglo-Americans that San Antonio called. No city in New Spain had suffered the way that San Antonio did for Mexican independence in 1813. And almost 100 years later, it would become the cradle of Mexican liberty as well, when it played host to Coahuilan Francisco Madero, who fled Mexico in 1910 to escape the agents of Mexican President Porfirio Diaz. It was no accident that Madero chose San Antonio, which in the early 1900s still celebrated the 16 de septiembre as a vital part of its own history, and which was then at the height of its adulation of the 187 men who had died opposing another Mexican tyrant's usurpation of power. Taking up residence in the old Hutchins Hotel just outside of La Villita, Francisco Madero would there write the Plan de San Luis Potosí, which Mexicans would take up as their rallying cry in deposing Porfirio Diaz the following year. I've lived in San Antonio pretty much since I was four years old, and yet I continue to find new communities, new vecinos, and new histories to fascinate me here. 
This is, I think, what makes this town so easy to love and so hard to leave. Here, the past is still present, enchanting you, challenging you, begging you to engage with it. Looking back over my own life, I see now how much time and energy I've spent trying to connect with these people I've just spent the last 10 plus hours talking to you about. As if by digging a single irrigation canal off of the bare Medina Atascosa water system, I might feel what it was like for a Native American convert to confront an entirely new way of life. As if by staking a well or carving a pipeline through an untamed stretch of northern Mexico, that I might know what it was like for those earliest Spanish settlers alone in the wilderness. As if by working cattle or playing cowboy, I might actually be honoring the trade that sustained and defined early San Antonians. Yet deep down I realize that reenacting the past is as futile as mining it for grievances or sanctifying it beyond all recognition. The best way, the only way, to truly honor the past and the men and women who made our city what it is today is for each of us to find a way to relate to their story, to embrace it with all its blemishes, and to wear it like armor against whatever new challenges may come our way. Thank you all for listening. If you've made it this far, I'm assuming that you've been able to get something out of this series. If so, the greatest compliment that you can extend to me here is to leave me your comments on iTunes or Stitcher, or if you've already done that, to share this story with people you think might enjoy it. For more information, old episodes, and a complete bibliography, check out our website at www.brandonseal.com. Editing for these episodes was provided by Susana Canseco. Sound engineering was performed by Stephen Bennett. I'd like to give a special thanks to my friend Noel McKay for letting us use his song, Mi San Antonio. I'd like to give a shout out to Pati Canseco for all of our graphic design work here, including our hit Sons of Libertad bandana. And thank you to James Chandler, Heather Chandler, and Andrew Jacobson with IMG Studios for all of their help with our website and with our video promotions. And one last thanks to you, San Antonio. Que viva San Antonio.